am Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod, and I am immortal. We have a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. Chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey, it's a kind of magic. Hi, I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello, and welcome to Another Time McLeod. The only podcast, to our knowledge, dedicated to breaking down the 1986 cult classic Highlander, minute by minute. As always, I'm joined by my learned co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it is such a pleasure to be here. And today we are joined by the inimitable Mr. Ian Bird. Hello, thank you for having me back. Hello, thank you for having me back. Actually, it turns out he's really imitable, it's fine, don't worry about it, we'll... uh... (laughs) Wow. <laughs> I hope you get your head knocked off, asshole. Can I also say that we have got Ian up. We are currently recording at 7.17am <laughs> and we are already making fun of our guest on a Saturday morning when we got him up to do this. We're just amazing. Yes, happy Halloween, ladies. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> Brilliant. Happy Halloween, ladies. Uh... Nuns. Sense of humor. Well, today we are going to be talking about the time period between 21 minutes 15 and 23 minutes 41, uh, which essentially Connor has just been arrested and is at the police station and is about to be interrogated by Moran, Bedso, and for some reason Garfield. <laughs> yeah, it is. Actually, I'd never thought of it like that before, but it is weird that just the duty cop is there in the room as well well this is one of the this is um about you but when i was a kid you used to make your own movies as well this is the scene that looks like all of those ones you filmed in your garage doesn't it so right down it's like okay well everyone just has to be in the room to make the room look busy and happening so uh moran's great big tape recorder that he puts down on the desk did you see it the size of this thing (laughs) it was the 80s it it all looks like this room was cobbled together in a hurry (laughs) Right down to the, there's a map of New York on the wall that looks like we are in New York. See, there's a map. (laughs) This scene wasn't filmed in London. How could you say that? (laughs) Yes, look at the map. Well, you say that, but only when I discovered that there were huge chunks of this film that were actually shot in London that I began to notice, oh yeah, the brickwork in the police station is not like American brickwork. It's like very old English brickwork. And, oh yeah, that street looks a bit like London. So for years and years and years, the subterfuge held... And then I had to get some knowledge and it ruined it all. But um, but yeah, I love the fact that when you see this scene now, it's like, oh yeah, look at that. That's clearly an office in London. But I think it's pretty well dressed. You're right. No human being would stack bricks like these. <laughs> Very good. It's it's all the kind of like artfully applied accoutrement, isn't it? Like, okay, we've got ceiling fans. We've got Venetian blinds. We've got cigarette smoke. There we go. That's 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 perfect set dressing. And it has to be said, some very very well dressed extras. Oh yeah, I love all the the um. That's the unsung hero of this this scene, isn't it? So those voices in the background. You can't keep me locked up here, asshole. <laughs> really good. You can't keep me here, asshole. <laughs> or the uh, the woman in the Elton John specs, who's the I think's the final shot of this sequence. Yeah, the um, <laughs> yeah the final shot is that great thing when they all applaud Connor for uh, for what he's done to the policeman. So 
This is the final scene with Garfield, as played by... Edward Wiley. The uh, the late Edward Wiley. Oh. When did he die? He died in 95. Oh, God. Really? Yeah. That's, that's down at the start of the podcast. <laughs> well, she mentioned it before, so um, it shows you listen to previous episodes. Three of the four actors in this scene are have, uh, have sadly passed away. Oh, oh, I didn't think about it like that. <laughs> Wait, John Polito's dead. D- didn't you know? Oh, this is. I'm really. I'm really sad to be breaking this news to you. That's awful. When did he die? A few years ago now, I think. Yeah, it was about 2015, something like that. Yeah, September 2016. Well, that's great. That was a, a, a wonderful time in this country's history. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Another wonderful thing that happened in that wonderful year, 2016. Half my of God, 2016. <laughs> the second half of 2016 was just terrible. Um... God, yeah, yeah, you're right, Rob. Three out of the four are dead, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But to go on to like a nicer point, of course, you're right. The reason why Garfield is in the room when he's just a beat cop is just to put more people in there, so there's more pressure on McLeod to talk. And I think that yeah, Edward Wiley knew this was going to be his last scene in the film because he really goes for it in terms of the acting. Did you see there's a bit at the beginning of the scene when he's looking at Connor and his eye starts twitching yeah. with rage. <laughs> well, no, because his eyes start twitching because he's nervous, doesn't he? Because he does that whole, I'm looking at, someone's giving me a thousand year stare. And then he winds up with the, oh, yes. the, the, the cheek twitch because um, I'm so furious with this Euro trash. Which is... That's right. <laughs> Connor's stare is so intense, it gets its own musical sting. It's really good. <laughs> But that's a great way to do it, isn't it? I mean, that's the... Because if you want to suggest the otherworldliness of this character and you have Mr. Christopher Lambert, then you say, yeah, we're going to do a really extreme close-up of his eyes because... A thousand-year stare, absolutely. It's, he does it really well. But he also breaks the room down because it's a really boring set. And again, it's like, well, you wouldn't do that these days. You would make sure you had the, the, the table that was bolted to the floor with the little U-bend to thread the handcuffs through. But instead, this is just... This is just an office that everyone can look in on. So okay, he's like breaking it up with the really low shot looking up and really tight close-ups on McLeod. After the fight finishes, he suddenly pulls back to this wide shot, doesn't he? And suddenly makes the room look enormous. So even though it's boring, he's still cutting into it to make it as exciting a premise as possible. Really interesting that you say that, Ian, because, yeah, he uses the same style and the same technique for this scene as he does for the battle scene earlier. So you start off with close-ups, extreme close-ups. Then you go to a really weird and slightly disorienting wide angle, which shows the whole space. Because remember when Moran enters the room, it's a very, very low wide angle shot, so you can see the entire room. Yeah. Then you go back into yeah the tight shots again. Then at the end, you go back to the wide, and it's like, oh, wow, this is exactly the same thing that you did for the battle sequence. And so I think it's there, again, just to to convey the tension, to get the tension through, and to sometimes kind of mess with your idea of space, yeah. which is really clever to to do that for yeah, what is a conversation scene after you've done it for a battle scene. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, this is the first scene where McLeod is actually in the modern day, and it's like a recognisable chunk of the modern day, isn't it? He's not lurking around a post-apocalyptic car park or staring at modern gladiatorial wrestling. Yeah. He's in a room talking to human beings. So it's like, okay, this is him transplanted in time more than any other scene that we've had so far. 
And that's the thing, you know, we've this is the first scene where anybody is talking to Connor as Russell. Yeah, and he, he just basically immediately stands out, doesn't he? <laughs> and it's one thing I literally only thought while re-watching this scene is the fact that everybody knows that when they identify the dead man as Iman Fazil, and I, I love the fact that Moran tries to trick him into <laughs> saying the name. <laughs> you went down that garage to buy this sword from that guy. What's his name? I don't know, you tell me. When they identify um, Iman Fazil, that's the name that Connor calls him. So that's the name that Connor knows him by. McLeod. Fazil. Wait. So is that not an alias? Because presumably Connor hasn't seen him for some time. Connor's obviously changed his name at least once, maybe multiple times since he's last met Fazil. But Fazil's still going by Fazil. But then um, McLeod has been stuck in the same building in New York since about 1700. Whereas you don't know what Fazil's been up to. But also, it, I like the idea that some people just make up a name on the fly. Some people are maybe just pretending to be their own son after a little while or whatever. So it, it's, I quite like that. Yeah, I, I thought it was the latter, to be honest. But that's a really good point, though, that um, that some people will have an alias and have a different alias after a different alias. But I always thought that Fazil was basically his son and his son and his son and his son, right kind of stuff. Yeah. Yes, hello. I'm Imam Fazil. I look exactly like and share a name with my father. <laughs> Strong genes. Strong genes on the male side. No, this was kind of like that whole wish fulfillment thing in the 80s as well, though. Do you remember that, that issue of Sandman where it's um, Man of Good Fortune? Yes. Uh, the Hob Gadlin character who uh, makes a deal with death so death won't take him. And he has to think about how he's going to pass himself off as the same person or entitled to the same property. So in the back of my mind, it was always thinking, hmm, what would I do? I'd, I'd go away for a couple of years and then come back saying I'm, I'm a long lost son of my dead father. <laughs> if, you know, ever I became immortal and needed to preserve my vast, vast funds, which is not necessarily likely, but, you know, the superior man plans ahead. Absolutely. I am glad and uh, relieved that you're making plans for it because you never know. Um... <laughs> it's like... A bit of my brain is like, the reason why I'll never get a tattoo is because you never know when you might want to be on the run and you don't want to have any distinguishing marks. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing here is that Ian is the kind of person who will argue on uh, the side of the council when they give him um, a parking fine, which there is a certain amount of ambiguity <laughs> over in terms of where you're supposed to pay for it. But Ian comes out on the side of the council. <laughs> so therefore, the idea of Ian doing something and having to go on the run is really, really... <laughs> funny <laughs> oh lawful good mr ian Burke. that's right i'm not lawful good i'm i'm lawful chaotic i'm no, chaotic I think lawful. That, uh, your name is now lg bird <laughs> lawful <laughs> kg bird bird kg bird kg bird the penguin get it get it why it's practically transparent so the you know, one of the things i thought here is that even though it's McLeod's first scene, and as you said, Ian, in a, a normal place in the present day. It really gets across the otherworldliness of him. One in that stare, and you do get the impression that, yeah, if you had lived a long time, you would have a stare that would just have more memories and more experience in it, and it wouldn't look the same as everyone else's stare, which I think is an absolutely fascinating idea. Well, everything in here comes from the dialogue, doesn't it? It's really wonderful. Di Every line is kind of like a pose line. But we've already established that these cops are jaded, seen everything before. Yeah, but I thought that was just Jersey. And so they stick him in a room with this mass murdering immortal. And it's all completely turned. So I like the way that McLeod has got his back to the wall, for example. So he's facing the entrance. So McLeod's already in the power seat. If you were going to an interrogation room. Yeah, that's right. 
you would sit like that. And also the way he's sitting with his knees as far apart as possible, which, you know, if I'd grown up wearing a kilt would not be how I would sit. But he's got this enormous man spreading pose as he's sitting there and he's clearly not intimidated by anything that's going on to the extent that to which he actually uh, takes part in a fight with a policeman in a police station <laughs> it's, it's very much like i'm not i'm not sure this is necessarily believable i'm not sure he'd get out of there yeah. alive yeah well that, at the end he kind of just goes you know am i under arrest no then i'm leaving <laughs> can you do that <laughs> i don't know am i under arrest not yet then we're through. <laughs> I suppose you can if you're not under arrest. You can leave at any time because he was just brought in for questioning. Yeah, and... but the last time we saw him, we had Garfield putting a gun to his temple. It's like, don't move, pal. <laughs> That's right. Don't even breathe. And the thing is, so... But, yeah, you're right, because thinking, well, they could hold him for, I don't know, was it 24, 36 hours? Because it's like, well, you're a person of interest. Um, and also, it's like, am I under arrest? Yeah, for assaulting a police officer. <laughs> Everyone just yes. um, ev- just did that everyone saw you do and you now have an audience who are cheering for you. <laughs> and we're just sort of saying it's like if sort of said in a, in, a, in a text yesterday, if Castigar had tried something similar, he would have got shot in the head almost immediately. But we've got we've got nice white <laughs> European here, so he, he gets a free pass. Yes, this guy's an antiques dealer on Hudson Street. He's probably got. I know, isn't that brilliant? You're an antiques dealer. Why, yes. Doesn't my doesn't my ensemble scream antiques dealer? Yeah. <laughs> well, you look a bit like Lovejoy, but but just in the eyes. <laughs> also, when uh, when Moran kind of arrives and he does the whole, you know, he talks about Vasilek, the Polic national, who's presumably another immortal killed by um, the Kurgan in Jersey. Name's Vasilek, Polish national. Had his head chopped off in New Jersey two nights ago. And yeah, some more giving Jersey some shit. You ever get over to New Jersey, Nash? Not if I can help it. Um, I like those repeating jokes, don't you? So you've got two consecutive scenes with a joke at New Jersey's expense. And you've got the same joke about the sword as well, haven't you? Like, What's that? It's a sword, Frank, a very rare sword. And then immediately next you have, uh, you know what this is? A sword. <laughs> Wise up, smartass. <laughs> okay. What's that? A sword. Wise up, smartass. I love the fact that Connor just grins in response to that. And Garfield's eye twitch goes. <laughs> yeah. He's basically, um, he's, uh, he's Dreyfus right. from Pink Panther. That's where you get the twitch. Right? <laughs> yes, he's going to grow up to be that. Let me find my nose. <laughs> Don't just stand there, idiot. Call a doctor and then help me find my nose. When Moran posits the theory that they fought and that Connor cut Fazil's head off... At this point, what are they positing is the murder weapon? Are they, do they still think the Toledo Salamanca is the murder weapon? Because it's like, well, so what you're, you're saying is, Fazil bought the Toledo Salamanca for me to buy, and I s- argued with him about the price, somehow got his sword off him and cut his head off. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Because that's what makes the scene in a, in a couple of um, minutes later so cool, when Brenda is going through the forensic results and realises that the murder weapon is a different kind of metal to the Toledo Salamanca. Because that's it's subtly written, isn't it? She gets the printout and she goes, wait, that can't be right. And it's trusting that the audience is following it across, so, which which you wouldn't get these days. You would have that completely spelt out. I saw it, watched it with my uh, 12-year-old a couple of months ago, and it was that point saying, so what's going on in this scene? <laughs> and he wasn't really following it, but it's like, yes, they're all assuming that the enormous sword is the murder weapon. But actually, if you dig a little bit deeper, there is a second sword somewhere. 
Ah, the second sword. Indeed. I do feel a bit sorry for the wrestlers being called lousy. Yeah. How dare you besmirch the fabulous so, Freebirds? Yeah. What do you want? <laughs> yeah, I thought Did that you was a see that. <laughs> All right. Want to hear another theory? This Fazil was so upset about lousy wrestling tonight. He went down to the garage and, in a fit of depression, cut off his own head. Um, but I do like the fact that when he says, here's what I thought, and goes through the whole thing and says you wanted to buy it, then you argued and you chopped off his head. It's like, that is a ridiculous thing to think. Um, so it does warrant a laugh. It's not funny, Walt. <laughs> you chopped off his head with the sword that you were going to buy. Um, but that's the thing, is that you would... But it's the most rational, because, of course, you're in a fantasy film where you don't know that he's an immortal. So I always think that's quite... It's like, look, I've got a headless body. This is the only thing that makes sense. So that's what I'm going to go with. So, uh, yeah. And then, and then he leaves the sword behind. <laughs> yeah, so he's like, right. oh, you <laughs> exactly. F- you know, fought with him over the price of the sword and then cut his head off and then left the murder weapon behind. Because he panicked. He panicked. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, but that's Godfather, isn't it? Uh, that's Godfather. You drop uh, the murder weapon because you don't want to be caught with you. Yeah. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. That's perfectly logical. That's how I'd kill. That's how I'd kill someone with a sword. But in which case, they don't ask him about just, the electrical just explosion. <laughs> that's a class action suit against uh, yeah, Madison right. Square Garden that's in the in the process of being settled. Yeah, they could have said actually. Yeah, we also think that you set off the electrical storm as a diversion. So, um, so you're going to be charged with uh, yeah destruction of property as well. So yeah, so uh, obviously Madison Square Garden gets sued over the electrical storm, they go bankrupt, and then they build the Opera House for Highlander 2. In Jersey. In Jersey. <laughs> Stop trying to make Highlander 2 happen. I, uh, they, they set up Jersey as a location, they mention it so many times. I'm surprised, you know, they should have set the finale in Jersey, just in the Pine Barrens. <laughs> with lots of people cheering on saying yeah go on fuck him up <laughs> but they'd be cheering the Kurgan because he looked cooler well, another point um, is that the this was one of the first scenes that they shot and the language consultant was on set because of course at this point Christopher Lambert still couldn't really speak English I think he'd been learning for about five weeks he could speak French but um, speak French. so yeah they had to get the language consultant So for the French dub, it was absolutely perfect. But they had to get the language consultant on set so that she could say, you don't say that word like that, you're stressing it wrong and that kind of stuff. But if you go back and watch this scene, another reason why he's so otherworldly to everyone else is because I'm sure that everything here is ADR'd. Oh, you reckon? As in, he recorded all the dialogue again afterwards. If you listen with headphones, he sounds different to all the other actors in the room. It sounds, it just has that slightly different sound in terms of the ambience to his voice, to everyone else's. And it's like, I'm sure that this was ADR'd. Um, I've heard that Christopher Lambert went back and ADR'd most of his dialogue, if not all of his dialogue in this film. Um, Brief shout out, of course, you're talking about the language consultant to Joan Washington, the late Joan Washington. Yes. Who was who was she married to again? Um, she was well. She was the language consultant for this film, and obviously trained Christopher Lambert uh, on you know basically how to how to speak English. Um, but one of the annoying things around the reporting of her death is that she's, she's wife to Richard E. Grant. You know, loads of the uh, loads of the newspapers were going, "Oh, That's the right. wife of Richard E. Grant has died," and it's like, I think you mean the wonderful Joan Washington, who was the dialogue consultant on Highlander. So maybe lead with that. Yeah, and uh, because she is, I mean. 
she's a big part also, of course. Christopher Lambert's a very, very talented man, but she is a big part of why his performance is so good when he was acting in a second language that he hadn't known six weeks before they started to film. Um, so, yeah, because he does give... He gives a really, really good performance, as we've said before, but it's, yeah, it's a slightly strange performance, which is completely befitting yeah, of the character. Yeah, it's very much an alien scene, isn't he? They're not quite sure what they're dealing with. Yeah. Now, one of the things that um, is great about Highlander is that when Ian and I first became friends at university, we kind of bonded over Highlander. And I remember there was an evening when we were all in a friend's room and the subject got onto Highlander. <laughs> well, with me and Ian, at least, anyway. And also like another friend of ours called Adam. And yes, I remember saying lots of different places. <laughs> you talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. Thought Ian just in that moment just thought, yeah, yeah, this guy's <laughs> passed the test. <laughs> I'll, I'll speak to him again. <laughs> because just because, of course, this scene has that wonderful line in it. And I always love the way that he delivers that line. He kind of says it with a very thick tongue and kind of from the back of the throat. Lots of different places. <laughs> it does also feel like a line that must have been added after Lambert was cast. Yeah. <laughs> it's not lampshading his wonderful yeah. accent. But I think that's why he was cast. I think that's why he was cast. It's like he's, uh, he's perfect in the role, and it, but on every level. He looks fantastic. Got amazing, amazing face. He sells all of the absurd sentiments. But he's also got an incredible accent. Incredible. <laughs> um, but yes, that's such a lovely line. So Rob, when you first saw the film, did that stand out to you as just a wonderful line, wonderfully delivered? Yes, I, I got vague memories. I definitely remember thinking, yeah, his, his accent is a bit weird. I don't know if I knew at that point enough to sort of say, well, he's Christopher Lambert, he's French and that he's kind of pulling against his French accent in what has very recently become a new language to him. Um, but no, he is all those things that when you're a kid that you, I, I think I was probably a little bit more sniffy about it when I, when I was a kid going, Oh, his accent is silly, isn't it? But now I kind of embrace the, uh, embrace the absurdity of the whole thing. Hey, it's a kind of magic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The first time I saw it, I was about 12. Uh, yeah. I think that, I don't know. I could have thought, yeah, this is a guy that's just been around for a while. And, um, I think just because he looks like a movie star, it's like, yeah, I'm just yeah, prepared to go with whatever this guy says, because he's clearly the hero of this film. And I'd say one of the things I'm not, <laughs> do you just infinitely blend accents? You don't end up with like a, a dominant one. <laughs> So it's like, so if you live everywhere, you will sound like everywhere instead of ending up like, you know, I've lived in various different places and your accent does change over time. But I, it's like, yeah, you say lots of different places. Can you be more specific? Yeah. I'm... <laughs> no, I like this because uh, when I was, uh, I backpacked around Australia for a year, like everybody else at the end of the 90s and whatnot. And you, you sort of come out of it with a horrible Essex Australian inflected estuary nasal twang where, you know, you have the sentences going up at the end, of the, the, the intonation going up at the end of every sentence. And it's like, you kind of up with a very, very ugly accent. Whereas you, I like the idea of being um, an international traveller and somehow coming out of that with either a Christopher Lambert voice or a Cary Grant accent. I would have been great if Cary Grant's voice had uh, been the accent that Christopher Lambert had swung for. Yeah, if this film had been made during the late 40s into the early 50s, would have been Cary Grant, right? Just a moment. But there are limits to what a man can bear. And besides that, tomorrow afternoon I'm going to get married. It would have been Cary Grant. 
<laughs> character. That would have been amazing. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, or, she or would have been in the sequel. That would, <laughs> yes, would, have, that would have been the Kurgan's voice. You, Rob. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Besides that, tomorrow afternoon I'm going to get married. <laughs> what for? I can't do it. I can't do That's it, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, <laughs> I've got a friend who does a brilliant Catherine It's very Hepburn, your... Isn't <laughs> that what she says about the boat? Well, we're back to Hannibal Lecter, aren't we? He's doing a Catherine Hepburn accent. Oh, Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? Everything comes back to... Uh, <laughs> Repeating to, ourselves. Yeah, move along, uh, move along. Catherine Hepburn in the end. Well, I, I can remember him when you came back from Australia. I didn't think that you were using the moronic interrogative, as it was called by Rory McGrath. <laughs> Everything's a question. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> Everything's a question. <laughs> it's a great day, isn't it? <laughs> that, that is a question. <laughs> that is a question. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> <Moving on. laughs> and there's something here, Ian, with your sharp eyes that, that you spotted that I had never seen before. And it's like, oh, yeah. Well, I'm not sure how it works, but Garfield has got the number 13 on his shirt collar. Which Does that mean this is the famous Precinct 13 of John Carpenter fame? No, because that was in L.A. But, it's, um, of course it is. Of course it's an L.A. film. <laughs> but I think, that's a, I think that's a reference, though. I do think, because I think, it, uh, I think that is how it works. The number on your lapel is... Are the, we basing um, that on Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Yeah, is the number of the precinct. Just on... <laughs> Just this osmosis that I've seen it so many times that actually registering it in films and stuff that it's like, oh yeah, that's prob- that's probably what that means. Can you imagine a version of this film where the Kurgan does mount an assault on the police station? That's a very 80s movie trope, isn't it? We've got the Terminator attacking LA police precincts. Not yes. a safe place to be. We're going to get onto that in the next episode, yeah, indeed. Um, and I think if they'd had the... If they'd had the budget, they might have done something like that. Because, of course, um, another one of the plot holes that everyone likes to talk about is, like, why is the Kurgan doing this on his own? Why hasn't he got an army behind him? He could easily get an army that he would say, yes, you will have all the riches if you just help me get this prize. Yeah, but um, I like that because he doesn't need an army. He's he, he's, he's the perfect warrior. He's just, yep, he does it himself. It's, I like that. I like the fact that he's sort of, like, moved beyond being a, a mercenary in the background. Well, we're going to talk about that in the next episode because we are going to be talking about the Kurgan but there's there is a point there that it's like he's the perfect warrior but how is choosing to live his life <laughs> you sound like his mum he's certainly no General Katana <laughs> he's another Highlander 2 reference again <laughs> stop trying to make Highlander 2 happen alright <laughs> yeah. well, every, every time I mention it I've got to put the um, the Ironsides alarm in so Yes, you can have two really, really quickly now and the audience are going to go, oh, God, stop mentioning Highlander 2. Don't do it there. <laughs> um, obviously, we learn also a bit more about Garfield in this scene. Not only does he hate Mondays, but he's a massive homophobe. A massive homophobe. Yeah, and, and you were telling me that um, Russell Mulcahy is, is homosexual. He's a, he's a gay yes, director. Yes, which I don't know if it's the first time we've mentioned it on this pod. We certainly didn't mention it on the episode where we were with, uh, with Chris Cooling and did a queer reading of Highlander, in which we completely forgot to mention that the director, Russell Mulcahy, is gay. And yet here you've got um, Garfield using Russell as uh, basically a gay slur. He's lilting the name as if to say it's a very effeminate lilting... I'll tell you what happened, Russell. Yeah, which is, do we know if 
the character was called Russell before Russell Mulcahy came aboard, or is that just something? Is that like a little Actually, bit? Uh, you're of, right. You know, I do think think he was called oh, Richard Turpin. Turpin, Dick Turpin, or, Tup- or he was Tupin. Not called Dick Turpin. He, he, he might have been yeah. called. He, I think he genuinely might have been. <laughs> My name is Hannibal Lecter. Called... <laughs> no, no, that needs another rewrite. My name is Jack Tiberius. <laughs> Sorry, it was Richard Taupin. That's a terrible name. Which is a play on that, I think. But um, yeah, so I wonder if if the change to Russell was because the director said, wouldn't it be great if you used the name Russell? There aren't enough Russells in films. <laughs> yeah, so we're now reading this as a directorial self-insert. Well, yeah, particularly if, if um, as we are discovering more and more, that there is a very, very compelling queer reading of this film, mm. then... Yeah, it makes complete sense that he would use his own name in there because I don't think he came out at that point. I think he came out in two thousand when he directed a few episodes of Queer as Folk, um, which I think I think it was the American version of it. Yeah, and he said at that time, to be honest, in the past I've always thought it was irrelevant, which is true. You also kind of get the impression that he didn't tell anyone because, as happened with Zachary Quinto. He came out and all the calls stopped and all the work dried up. Um, And that was years and years later. But he said, yes, I just thought it was like a bit of an irrelevance to say that I'm gay. But with this, because this is such an important story to me, I think it's now the right time to say, yes, I actually have a personal interest Um, in this. And it's interesting because obviously this scene in particular, I mean... (laughs) Edward Wiley gets some wonderful line deliveries of some pretty horrible things. You know, when uh, when he's down to the garage for a blowjob is an all-time great line reading. You went down to the garage for a blowjob. Just didn't want to pay for it. You are sick. (laughs) It is. It's also the line that on the Saturday afternoon when we were watching it as a family... The film almost got turned off. Because <laughs> it was early enough in the film that it's like, is it all going to be like this then? <laughs> but it was kind of late enough that we were all quite intrigued by what the story was. So that was like, got a big tut from my mum Mother, is he referring to the act of fellatio? Um, but as the figures that we were, well, I, I think I knew what it was at that point. I'd have been 10. So actually maybe, maybe, no, no, sorry. Um, We saw it when... In 87, 88, so I was 12 or 13, so I definitely knew what it was at that point. But, oh, it was like... but my younger sister was there, and I don't think she knew what it was, so that got this really, really big turn. It was like, yeah, so, no, so nobody oh, asked mum what's a blowjob? No, it was one of those, context. I think just from the context and the way that, yeah, that Edward Wiley says it, it's like, probably shouldn't ask what... Probably shouldn't check what that is. Yeah, the jerk had been on TV the night before, so that's that's everyone's sex education. I don't remember that. What's oh, that is there is. <laughs> when um, Steve Martin's writing back to his parents about uh, his life in the big city. And she's offered to give me a blowjob. <laughs> yeah, because he's looking for work or That's something. it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that feels great. I, I will include that clip for reference. <laughs> My friend Patty promised me a blowjob. Your loving son, Nathan. And he's got the kisses here. That Patty must be a sweet girl. God bless him. And he is brilliant in Only Murders in the Building. <laughs> yeah. Offline, Ian has been really, really, uh, what's the word? Encouraging us to watch this. Encouraging us with extreme prejudice to watch this show. And uh, 
But we shall, because we're only about half hour each, aren't they? So that's fine, we can watch those. Exactly. Uh, there is obviously the, the playground psychology reading that Garfield is gay and self-loathing and attracted to Connor, and who wouldn't be with those amazing eyes? God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it is nice, isn't it? Because this is, this is revealing these cops, these macho cops, as being total children. So they're the ones with their silly plan to try and get him to reveal that he knows the name of the guy who was killed. What they're was his name again? To... <laughs> I don't know, you tell me. In the novelization, there's a reference to that. And Moran says, I don't know why I did that. That never works. <laughs> In the novelization, I remembered. But um, yeah, they, they're just, these are just children. Every time you see the police, they're getting uh, increasingly incompetent. I love the idea. I love novelizations that subtly undermine the screenwriters. It's like, it's like, oh man, that was shit, wasn't it? They're just lampshading. But yes, so it's like this is kind of like the establishment of the police are irrelevant and Nash can just get up and walk out and, and not really be troubled again. I mean, yeah, John Polito's bedso in this scene doesn't even have a line of dialogue. He's just kind of standing there awkwardly. Laughing. It's not funny, Walt. Yeah, yeah and the fact that they're letting yeah. Garfield speak and Moran isn't like, Garfield, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Well, I always got the impression there that Garfield actually was the muscle in that bit when he was he was the one that would come. He would be the bad cop. So he'd be thinking, well, John Polito should be the bad cop because he's your partner. It's like, no, we'll leave it to you know the beat officer in case there's a complaint. <laughs> no one's going to believe John Polito is the bad cop. No. I think in the next scene, he's not even wearing shoes. He's just sitting with his socks out, isn't he? Eating Cheetos <laughs> in the right. same room. Did he ever get his cherry cheese Danish? That's what I want to know. Walker, get me a cherry cheese Danish too, please. <laughs> Hopefully not, because that sounds horrible. Um, but there's another... At the bit when they have the scuffle at the end of the scene, it looks like John Polito is the actor that actually takes the fall when he is shoved back by Connor. Yes. And it's like, it's a wide shot, so I had to look in, but it's like, that does look like him or a portly stuntman. <laughs> but, a portly and he, stuntman. And he certainly falls against, and I think he falls against a chair and he slides down the wall and stuff. And it's like, that's a pretty good fall for just an actor who then has to have other scenes and you're thinking, well, he can't get hurt that much because he's kind of, we've got some other things we need to do with him. That's because he's only sitting down in all his, in his, his two remaining scenes. <laughs> he's got to sit in the car it. and sit with his shoes off. That's all he That's does. It. Oh no. He also goes to the hospital, doesn't he? Yeah. And gets called baffled. Hey, Moran. Have you read what it says in here? What does baffles mean? <laughs> but I think you're right. They were actually walk and talk scenes to begin with. But it's like, oh no, he really hurt his back. And the injections are doing no good. So therefore we need to put him in a car or on a chair. Russell, do I have any dialogue in this scene? No, but we're going to throw you into a wall. <laughs> Giving me the high hat. Can't believe it. Yeah. We uh, we talk about a bit about John Polito in the previous episode, and uh, yeah, there's been plenty of opportunities to sample his wonderful dialogue from Miller's Crossing. <laughs> <laughs> to an indulgent degree, Rob, we're doing a uh, we're doing a a podcast solely on Highlander, and that's going to come in in about seventy episodes. It's all to an indulgent degree. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we must not curb our appetites. So is there anything else to say about this scene? I'm trying well, to think of anything again, that you, I've... Again, uh, you don't hear much of them in terms of specific dialogue, but the American, quote-unquote, American extras are, are good. Again, you're wondering if they just how many of them they just carted over from, quote-unquote, Madison Square Garden. <laughs> yes, I bet they did, which makes sense, right? It's uh, but the And also, yeah, because I would like to know well, how many of them are actually American. I would, I would imagine very few. 
if any, which means that they would have had to have got American actors to do all the voices. And yeah, and if they were just other cast members that they got, said, yeah, you can... You sound a bit different when you do that. Just say this. <laughs> they actually, uh, yeah, they got Christopher Lambert to do them all in ADR because by that point he'd really nailed the uh, speaking English. Yeah, <laughs> to the point where, yes, he was actually quite a good impersonator. Uh, I did like the idea that you had to wrap, had to find an evidence bag for a four-foot broadsword. It's like, oh, we've got evidence bags for tiny little specks of cigarettes and whatnot, but no, we've got to find an evidence bag that's going to actually take this enormous sword. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a, although I suppose they would, they'd use a bag for, say, a rifle or something like that, wouldn't they? Fine, take all the comedy out of it. I don't care. Right. <laughs> you can't keep me locked up in here, asshole. Nothing is funnier than cold, hard logic applied to something. <laughs> Obviously, this scene ends with Connor walking out the door, being applauded by the uh, the rest of the denizens of the police station. Which you know does very much. That's that's fairly fantastical. Yeah, even you know even in New York, where I'm, you know, at this point, all these people have been arrested. The the idea that they and then they all broke out in applause. Oh, I don't know. I think it's one of those things because it because you get the impression that it's the middle of the night and they've all been hauled in and some of them, yeah, some of them are hookers who've just been hauled in, thinking, oh, this is like yeah, the sixth time this week and it's such a ball ache to go through all this and blah blah blah, blah. and then suddenly someone starts to beat up the cops, I think that they would say, oh, this is great, this is a bit different, and it's also really good because they're beating up cops. So, uh, Also, yeah, yeah are, the, are the blinds open in this scene? I'm guessing they must be if they see uh, Russell Nash. All the blinds are sort of like half open, half closed in that in that tatty. It's a pain in the ass to have Venetian blinds. Venetian blinds are dreadful things, especially these awful aluminium yeah, ones. Right. It like, never work. It's covered in dust. Exactly. It's like, oh, what, what if curtains, but you have to dust them? <laughs> but I think that goes back to, uh, to what Ian was saying about this actually being quite a mundane and boring room that they're in. One way to make it more interesting is to have stuff going on in the background. And yeah. even if it's just yeah, some people moving, it, it just gives more movement to the scene. And But you use blinds because of, well, well yeah, one, it was the 80s. Um, so therefore, everyone had these blinds. and Because now this scene you're at in, this scene now would be in a room with a yeah. two-way mirror, and that's it. Um, but, uh, but I wonder if in if in the 80s they actually had those sort of rooms. I mean, they would have rooms with no windows, but I wonder if it was just like a, you know, like a local precinct, if you would just have it in an open room that you know, <laughs> everyone could look into. <laughs> <laughs> so what, yeah, try to get people to confess through social awkwardness? <laughs> yeah, look, look all these people, they're, look, they're all looking at you. They're all waiting for you to say something. <laughs> I did it, I did it. <laughs> well, I can't believe that worked. What was his name again? <laughs> See, I would, I would have walked out there <laughs> just through stupidity. Good luck. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. Let him go. He's clearly a, he's clearly a dumb shit. <laughs> he didn't chop off anyone's hair. <laughs> and he certainly isn't hundreds of years old either. Yes, I am. Hold up. Oh, crap. I shouldn't have said it was a customer. Oh, crap. I shouldn't have said it was a secret. Oh, crap. I certainly shouldn't have said it was illegal. Chopped off his own head. <laughs> he's Brian Harvey from E17 <laughs> running over his head again. <laughs> I, uh, I think now that we've reached the point of referencing <laughs> Brian Harvey in E17, is there anything else anyone wants to talk about <laughs> relating to the scene? The 
fact that we haven't referenced Brian Harvey running over his own head in a Highlander podcast until the 13th episode, one of the great cultural events of the last 25 years. Well, actually, I think it was the 90s, wasn't it? So the last 30 years, oh my God. Well, I'm sure we'll reference it multiple times going forward now because it's now become an (laughs) in-joke. I know I will. And we should try and get him on as a guest. There's no dolgence like indulgence. Possible, possible episode title. <laughs> Very good. In fact, yeah, I am yes. just going to go back through and edit this. So instead of introducing you as Ian Bird, I introduce you as Ian Dolgence. You're the one doing the damn podcast. Yes, look at that, I know. And the funny thing is, guys, this is the end of this episode, but we're keeping Ian on for another episode that we're going to record directly after this one. So he's given up such a chunk of his Saturday morning. My kids are downstairs watching Simpsons, and it was a good one as well. <laughs> Where is he with us? Don't worry, we're, we're averaging about nowhere. three Simpsons clips an episode at this point, so... <laughs> Whether... You can't keep me locked up in here, Whether asshole. the Simpsons are mentioned or not, it's still three, it's still three clips an episode. <laughs> so, yes. shall we wrap um, it up? Okay, uh, given that he has kindly, again, given up his Saturday morning for this, uh, Ian, would you like to do your plugs? Oh, I don't really have any plugs. Um, I've, I've got a, a website at www.mrcarapace.com. And a Twitter account, but I know that you don't you don't tweet very much. Oh, no. No, no, no. Okay, and uh, Mr. Daniel? Well, I do tweet. <laughs> and you can find my tweets at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. We have a sister podcast called The Movie Robcast. And you can find that on Twitter at Movie Robcast. You can listen to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And yes, if you do that, then we'll be your friends forever. Okay, if you want, you can follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. Uh, You can find my writing at, of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. I've got a lot of coverage up at the moment of uh, this year's London Film Festival. You can follow this podcast on Twitter, at McLeodTime, or drop us a line at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Mr. Ian Bird, for joining us, and thank you very much for listening. All that's left to say is... Overtime, McLeod!